Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we hear from writers from the region who write about the Rocky Mountain West. I start to think of it in terms of it being a decolonization narrative. And so once I once I go in that direction, once I realize that, then I start to look at it through this lens of healing. I find that observing nature is at the root of very goodness. These natural landscapes, they, they give so much to us, whether it's an enjoyable experience, whether it's healing. Having grown up and, and been in the Gunnison Valley my whole life, I always wondered what is the story there? What is the story of those people? What did it feel like to have to be displaced from that land? From the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, it's the Regional Roundup. Author Oscar Hokia drew from personal experience for his debut novel. Calling for a Blanket Dance is a coming-of-age story about a Native American and Mexican main character named Ever. The book was on the shortlist for this year's Aspen Words Literary Prize, which awards $35,000 to a work of fiction with a social impact. Kaya Williams of Aspen Public Radio spoke with Hokia about his book. Let's dive into the, the messages of this book. What was the, the kind of philosophical story that you're trying to tell here with this collection? You know, there's multiple themes you can play with in this novel. You know, it definitely touches on a lot of the societal topics that, you know, you might want to engage with, like in a classroom structure with, with regard to like race, class and gender. But, you know, one of the, the main themes for me as I, as I was writing it, especially once I got to the point where I see that transformation narrative happen, I start to think of it in terms of it being a decolonization narrative. And so once I, once I go in that direction, once I realize that, then I start to look at it through this lens of healing. Because for me, when I think of decolonization, that's what I think. I think of healing, like healing trauma, overcoming trauma. And, it, you know, and that might come from the fact that I've work with at-risk Native youth for, you know, almost 20 years now, and it's been, you know, a part of my working environment, my daily working environment, where I'm working with youth to help them heal, help them overcome um, some of these obstacles that we see in the Native community. Um, And so I start to look at it through this lens of healing and tackling um, some of those elements of that happen in the community, but through a cultural lens, like where the culture becomes a solution for Evergy Masato having this building aggression. He has these elders in his life that kind of like give him hints and give him direction, support him along the way. But ultimately it's up to him. Like he has to make that choice himself of whether he's going to kind of take the right path and become a healing force in the community as opposed to being a destructive one. Did you find that writing this book helped you heal through anything that you've experienced in your own life? Oh yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. Like that's, you know, like there's a kind of a selfishness when I sit down to write, like I'm, there's, there's things in society or in my own personal life that I don't understand. Like, why did things happen the way they happened? You know, um, you know, why did I, you know, like when I dealt with abuse from my father, whenever I was younger and, um, and just kind of facing it head on, but, you know, facing it head on in these narratives inside of the novel helped me come to a better understanding of who my father was 
and where he was coming from, especially when you look at the character Araceli Chavez, who is the main character's cousin, um, because she had a different viewpoint of the main character's father. So in order for me to have a deeper insight to my father, I had to look at this character through Adeseli's eyes. But there's also, you know, in that same chapter where Adeseli Chavez is is located, the main character loses a daughter. And um, and I lost a daughter in those same exact circumstances. And that was hard. You know, when you're, you're a parent, you're supposed to be able to do something. You know, when your kids are sick, you... You give them medicine, you hold them, um, you give them some, you know, th- something to eat that might help them. But, you know, you take care of them. You can you do something. And in that particular circumstance, like it was probably where it was the most uh, powerlessness that I've ever felt. And um, just not being able to feel like I could do anything, you know, and I needed to try to figure that out. And it was through writing, writing it into the novel. And dealing with it head on, just kind of facing it, it helped me process out those emotions and those circumstances and, and to find a, a better place and a place of healing for sure. And for other people who can relate to the experiences that are described in this book, are there lessons that you can pass on to readers about how maybe you wish you had navigated it or how these characters navigate the challenges that they're facing? You know, as we walk through the world, we're kind of moving in the material world, we're, we're stuck in this space between um, creation and destruction. And it's constantly happening around us all, you know, all the time, every day. And in order to survive that, in order to do something positive with being in that state, is to stay in a place of healing at all times. And I think that that's what I've learned over the years, just having um, overcome the obstacles that I just mentioned and, you know, other obstacles that I've encountered as well, just trying to stay in this in this space of healing, like trying to heal myself and also my my kids as well, and maybe even staying in a place of prayer sometimes, like as as a source of healing. But cultural engaging in cultural elements as well. I hope that's what readers walk away with is that you know sometimes sometimes we need the community to heal, like because collectively we're we're all struggling with the similar similar things, and um, coming together to dance and ceremony. It's powerful and it does a lot, a lot of good. And so I would hope that I hope that um, that's what readers walk away with. That was Oscar Hokia speaking with Aspen Public Radio's Kaya Williams about his debut novel, Calling for a Blanket Dance. It was shortlisted for this year's prestigious Aspen Words Literary Prize. Ultimately, the top prize went to the book called The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories by author Jamil Jan Kuchai. You can find all of Kaya Williams' conversations with the Aspen Words finalists online at aspenpublicradio.org. You're listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. I'm Maeve Conran. Author Shelley Weed is a fifth-generation Coloradan and a lifelong resident of the Gunnison Valley, a region at the heart of her debut novel, Go as a River. The book tells the story of loss, love and hope, and it's set against the backdrop of Iola, the real western slope town that was submerged by the creation of the Blue Mesa Reservoir in the 1960s. I spoke with Reed about the book as part of KGNU's Radio Book Club at the Boulder Bookstore earlier this spring. 
So Blue Mesa Reservoir, if maybe some of you have driven past it or seen it, it's the largest reservoir in Colorado. And it's a central part to our lives in the Gunnison Valley. I guess I should say that I've lived in the Gunnison Valley my entire adult life, um, well over 30 years. And I spent a lot of time there as a child because I had family there even before I was born. And I'm super grateful for that because the Gunnison Valley, um, you know, we're, my family, my husband is here, my son, were very, very rooted. And, and some of his friends were born and raised in the valley were very, very rooted in that place. It's a very unique and amazing place. And in the Gunnison Valley, all of us swim and boat and fish and ice skate on Blue Mesa Reservoir. It's just part of our lives. And um, what a lot of people don't realize is that, as you say, underneath Blue Mesa Reservoir are three towns, Iola, Sapanero, and Cibola, that were thriving ranch towns and farm, farm communities. Um, there was, it's a, uh, Gunnison River is famous for is fishing, so there were fishing resorts, and it was lively throughout um, the late 19th and, and into the mid 20th century. When the Colorado River Compact was signed, a very complicated water laws, and it's very relevant to the conversation today because, as we all know, uh, Lake Powell is is very, very low right now. And what a lot of people, even people who live on the Western Slope, didn't realize about Blue Mesa Reservoir is it's actually a reservoir not to hold water for the benefit of Gunnison County. It's a, it's a, a water that can be used to supply Lake Powell with water when it gets too low. And thus, with some of the drought that we've had in the American West um, over the last several years, for the first time since Iola um, was flooded and the Blue, the Blue Mesa Reservoir was created with the Blue Mesa Dam, for the first time since it happened in 1965 and 1966, three years ago and this summer, the town of Iola, the remnants of the town of Iola actually emerged because there was a water call based on the Colorado River Compact that allowed um, downstream entities, particularly Lake Powell, to drain the water out of Blue Mesa Reservoir in order to serve um, the, lower, the lower water needs. And so, you know, it's generations and decades of complexity around what created Blue Mesa Reservoir, what's going to continue on as Blue Mesa Reservoir, that I think all of Coloradoans should be more aware of, um, because it's certainly not um, unique in the complexity of, uh, of water politics in the American West. Um, when Blue Mesa Reservoir was proposed, when the dam was proposed, um, the people of Iola, Sapanero, and Cibola were given no choice. They had to evacuate the land, even if they'd farmed it for generations, as my character Victoria's family has, has, has done. She's a fictional character that's set in a real situation, but the actual people who lived in Iola had no, um, no choice but to leave. And the first person accounts of that era are incredibly painful. It was very, very devastating for the people to have to leave. I always wondered, what is the story there? What is the story of those people? What did it feel like to have to be displaced from that land? And then, of course, I also was wondering, what does it feel like to be displaced um, previous to the white settlers of Iola, the indigenous population? And those layers and layers of pain around displacement are something I really wanted to dig into in this book. I want you to talk about Gunnison. And you yeah. said you're fifth generation. Your kids now are sixth generation. We have a tendency, and certainly here in the Front Range, to 
say the western slope and sort of <laughs> look true. at western Colorado, anything west of the Front Range as sort of a monolith. Yeah, that's true. Gunnison is very specific, <laughs> yeah. you know, geographically, you know, climate wise. We've talked about, you know, the Gunnison River and the Blue Mesa Dam and everything. But I want you to talk a little bit about that because you're fifth generation. What do people need to know about Gunnison? What what are some of the misconceptions and, and you know, who are the people who live there? Yeah, great. Um, well, Gunnison County is huge, first of all, and so even though I like how you, how you pointed out that we tend to talk about the western slope as if it's like one thing, the western slope is full of variety, full of all sorts of different kinds of landscapes, lots of different kinds of people. Um, Gunnison County itself is also similar. It's, a, it's huge. It's the size of the state of Rhode Island. Is Delaware, size of the state of Delaware. And the other amazing thing that a lot of us in this audience love about Gunnison County is that it's 90% public lands. It's BLM land, it's national forest land, it's vast wilderness areas, and so just endless wild landscapes that um, really define life in the valley. And um, so that's, that's the first thing that I would say about the Gunnison Valley. Um, the second thing is you mentioned the ranchers, generational ranchers and farmers in the valley um, who are so proud, uh, so connected with the land, so proud of their way of life, but very humble, very humble, very stoic. I brought a lot of that in with Victoria's character and the people in the ranching community that I created here in Iola, of people who just get up every day and just do what needs to be done. It is not unusual at all for it to be 20, 30 degrees below zero in Gunnison County and see those ranchers out there on their horseback feeding, feeding the cattle. Just tough people. Um, I come from very similar people. My ancestry is on the northeastern plains of Colorado, the southeastern plains of Colorado. My grandfather was an amazing storyteller and I was lucky enough to grow up um, just down the street from, from them and uh, hear my grandpa's stories of farming and ranching generation, generationally. Um, I heard his stories my entire life. He also, when his memory started to fade, we got him a typewriter and he typed out a lot of those stories. And so we have this really valuable document in my family. And I referred to that over and over again when I was writing this book. So I know that kind of person and um, I value them so deeply. And the way that I would describe a lot of the people in the, in the Gunnison County is just grit, like deep, deep grit, deep, deep, just deep, strong, interesting people. Um, and so I, I think that's probably what I would want people to know the most about the ranching community particularly. And also, you know, when I, I speak about how um, there's been a lot of international interest in my book, um, one of the things people want to know most is exactly that question. They, they're kind of fascinated by life in the Gunnison Valley where we can get 400 inches of snow, wild landscapes, ranchers, farmers. It's a different kind of life um, that I love and value so much. And um, it's been a real joy to be able to introduce that, that landscape and that way of life um, to a wide audience through this book. Shelley Reed's debut novel is Go as a River. You can find the full interview at news.kgnu.org. You're listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. Tiao Lim Go explores the Chinese immigrant experience in the American West in her new collection of essays called Western Journeys.
She spoke with Taya J on KVNF's The Pen and the Sword. For me, I find that I'm not a historian in the sense of, you know, I mean, I do historical research, and, but I'm not, a, I'm not a historian in the sense of, you know, I don't entirely live in the archives. You know, I, I, know, I, I do have notes and citations, but I'm not that obs- obsessive about it. But this is, it's, for me, it's not a work of straight historical scholarship, but rather looking at the world through various lenses, one of which is history, one of which is, you know, personal experience and kind of seeing what comes out, what the sum that is greater than its parts when I put the two together. And I'll give you an example. So I do talk about a lot about um, Chinese immigration in the American West. 1882 was the Chinese Exclusion Act. Between 1910 to 1940, Chinese immigrants were detained at the Angel Island Immigration Station in the San Francisco Bay. I don't so much compare it, but I kind of put it in conversation with my own immigration experience now, or you know, recent history, uh, as well as a lot of those things that are happening for example, on the U.S.-Mexico border right now. Our current immigration system is informed and, in fact, a direct descendant of the exclusion laws back in the 19th century. What's happening now has a historical context. It didn't just come out of nowhere. I think it's impossible to talk about, well, this country, and especially impossible to talk about the West without talking about the indigenous people and the people who lived on this land originally. Um, And I think you do a really beautiful job of, of giving nod to that, of, of including that in your conversation about, you know, it's not just about the Chinese immigrants experience, although that's of course what you have personal connection to, but it's about the erasure of cultural histories all across this nation for as long as, as white men have walked on this continent. And so I think that was a, um, I'm just wondering if you'll speak a little bit more to that decision to include histories outside of, you know, your own cultural understanding, but that are, that are intrinsic to the history of, of the U.S. First of all, you know, it is a book of, uh, it's not exactly personal essays, but there's definitely a personal aspect to it. And obviously, I cannot be absolutely complete, you know, because you cannot include everything. But I wanted to have a rounded view of what the realities on the ground is. And the West has always been a meeting place of cultures and ideas. And as you mentioned, the indigenous people who have always been here, and, you know, they're still here, they continue and adapt their traditions. They were the Hispanics across the board, who did not cross the border, but the border crossed them. And obviously the, the Chinese who sailed across the Pacific for various opportunities. I wanted to center these stories as opposed to the dominant story of the West that's you know about cowboys and Indians and conquest and domination. I wanted to say that, you know, there's a lot more to that. Uh, obviously, you know, in such a short book I cannot include all of it, but I want to at least acknowledge it. But I do want to talk about how much time you spend with nature and and discussing nature. And and one moment in particular to me that really stood out is the way that you identify this human need to conquer nature. Um, I'm thinking particularly of your essay, Ascent, where you explore the history of Long's Peak 
You write this really beautiful thing. You say, we use the word virgin to describe territory that is not yet to be discovered by man. I say man for the concept is gendered. Places like women are prized for their purity and their value is diminished once a man has made incursions into them. It's such a beautiful line and I'm curious just in closing, if you'll talk a little bit about the importance of including nature in the context of all of the other large topics that you explore within these essays. So what I would say is that I feel that nature is actually at the root of all these essays. And when I first started writing and tried to figure out what I wanted to say, I started making observations of nature. And it's true making observations of nature where I learned, first of all, kind of name and describe what I can see you know, the flower, the mountain, you know, the river, it's almost kind of like a meditative practice in a sense. At first, you know, they were all just descriptions that go nowhere, you know, for myself. But what I've eventually found as I went along the way is that I've turned them into metaphors. So for example, in the passage from coastlines, all the descriptions of the sea, but the sea is a border. And it's both a physical border that a body cannot cross. Angel Island was chosen to be for the immigration station for the exact same reasons that Alcatraz was chosen for a maximum security prison. So that sea was, was a border, both a physical border as well as a national border. So that's when I move from nature to history to metaphor. The other important thing is for me, nature, I find that observing nature is at the root of bearing witness. And most of the, a lot of the work that I do is bearing witness because, you know, I'm saying this is what I see, whether it's that observation of nature or that injustice that I see both in history as well as what's going on right now. Author Tiao Lim Go speaking with KVNF's Taya J about her new collection of essays, Western Journeys. You can find the full interview at kvnf.org. Author Morgan Sjogren's new book, Path of Light, A Walk Through Colliding Legacies of Glen Canyon, retraces the 1920s Bernheimer expeditions into the heart of Glen Canyon and Bears Ears National Monument. She spoke with Lara Jones on KRCL's Radioactive. Charles L. Bernheimer was a wealthy cotton textile businessman in New York City, Manhattan, um, in the 1920s. And each year during um, his 50s and 60s, he would fund these pack train expeditions through Bears Ears, Glen Canyon, and the Navajo Nation. And his goal was to do something more with his vacations. And he wanted to contribute to exploration and research. And so he funded the trips for the American Museum of Natural History and brought along a team of the area's most noteworthy guides and also a permanent archaeologist, Earl Morris. While I was camped out in Bears Ears in my Jeep where I where I lived in the winter of 2019 specifically, I took I took interest in him because even though we couldn't be more different, I was pretty broke, just a freelance writer. I also wanted to do something more with, with my hiking. I wanted to learn about an area and give back to helping to protect it. And, and ultimately, through researching Bernheimer, I realized that's what he wanted as well. And he made efforts to protect Bears Ears and Glen Canyon as part of a national park proposal in 1929. It was a book that he wrote as well, right? Yes. Um, his book, Rainbow Bridge, was published in 1924 
Um, and it talked about his adventures mostly around Navajo Mountain and going to Rainbow Bridge in the early 1920s. And at the time, those were areas that I had not been to yet. And so it inspired me not only to go hike there, but also to meet the local people from the Navajo Nation and the San Juan Southern Paiute Tribe who live in the area and talk to other historians um, to learn about the area. And, and again, not just go somewhere and and take in the beauty, but learn more of its history and why it's so special. Yeah, he had a particular dream about National Park, right? You write about that in your book. Yet you start with a quote from Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, we don't manage the land, the land manages us. So you have the story of this man from the 20s, and now we have the conversation about conservation here in our current time. Not to mention, when I think of like the big books of Western exploration, I think of Abby, I think of men, and here you are, Morgan. So bring this all together for us. So Bernheimer in 1929, as we were discussing, um, created a proposal for what he called Rainbow National Park, which would encompass Rainbow Bridge and parts of Glen Canyon, areas of the Navajo Nation, and even Monument Valley. And by the early 30s, it expanded to encompass what we know now as Bearsier's National Monument, which is really eye-grabbing because we're still kind of grappling with what that protection means and it's gone back and forth in the present era. Um, but it also brings into focus, again, what land protection means and, you know, is it all a positive thing? So in 1929, Bernheimer and his team rallied behind this idea. They gave tours to Park Service personnel and Earl Morris met with prospective supporters. Popular support for the proposal was bolstered by Bernheimer's popular book, Rainbow Bridge, and a color slideshow presented by Bernheimer was hosted by the Department of the Interior in Washington, D.C. But their primary concern for the park was that the boundaries were within the Navajo Nation would pose significant bureaucratic challenges. I question whether Bernheimer's vision for a national park was truly a progressive idea or just another version of Manifest Destiny. Conservation and its figureheads like John Muir are currently undergoing a long overdue reevaluation. In the early 20th century, Muir blatantly aimed to erase indigenous people from land to keep it untouched and clean from human intrusion. The 1964 Wilderness Act hauntingly echoes this tone with its call to protect areas where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man and where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. This is directly at odds with the fact that so-called wilderness areas are past and present homelands of indigenous people. To his credit, Bernheimer worked and traveled with Diné guides and even spoke out against racism. Bernheimer's National Park proposal would not displace current residents and the park lands would be co-managed by the Navajo Nation. Furthermore, Bernheimer and his supporters insisted that the park not relocate any Diné or Paiute people living within the boundaries or disrupt their grazing practices. So in many ways, very forward thinking and echoing some of what we've heard about the conversation in co-managing lands today. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's things that are obviously, you know, a century old and outdated. But I, I think without question that if Bernheimer was around today, he would be a huge donor to the Bearsers in a tribal coalition and one of their allies and, and working with them to help in any way that he could. So how do you want folks to use this book? You know, writing with your reader in mind, what is it you want to see come from their experience encountering Path of Light? Through this journey, I realized that when we fall in love with a place and, you know, especially these natural landscapes, they, they give so much to us, whether it's an enjoyable experience, whether it's healing, um, whether it's a place to go of safety and refuge, it's different for everyone. But I, I hope that readers can not only think about the Southwest landscape and areas like Glen Canyon and Bears Ears, 
but areas that they love near their own homes or other national parks or beautiful places they visited and think about how they can be a Bernheimer. And even, you know, we are not all millionaires, but how in your own way you can give back to these places that you care about, whether that's through stewardship, ethical visitation, obviously, and, and certainly joining conservation groups that are doing the heavy lifting to continue to protect these areas and becoming a small donor. Just the, the myriad of ways that we can not just take experiences, but like Bernheimer, do something more with our travels. Author Morgan Shogren speaking about her new book, Path of Light, A Walk Through Colliding Legacies of Glen Canyon, speaking with Lara Jones on KRCL's Radioactive. You can find the full show at krcl.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Aspen Public Radio, KVNF in Paonia, KRCL in Salt Lake City and KGNU in Boulder and Denver for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. <laughs>